Please open your Bibles with me to the 23rd Psalm. In our household, this is a very special psalm, and you may think, well, of course, Pastor, it's maybe the most common of all of the portions of the entire Bible, and certainly it's the most popular out of the book of Psalms. But this is the bedtime psalm of my children. We sing it together. They know it. It's, it's a sweet part of the daily lives of, of my kids and me and, and my wife, and it's because it's a psalm of comfort. It tells us who God is, and it tells us who we are because of who he is. And so today we're going to study it together. Let us read the word of God in the 23rd Psalm, the Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so kind to your people. You are not a silent maker or a distant deity, but a very present and personal Lord. And you know us. You know our needs. You know our weaknesses, our victories and our failures. Lord, you provide for all of those things. Lord, as we hear your word this morning, we pray and plead with you that you would minister to our souls. That, Lord, you would show us our weakness in the shadow of your strength. Our Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Psalms are so important in the lives of the people of God. And there are a number of reasons why that is. They provide a voice for praise. They are the Bible's own hymn book. It is for us Not just a snapshot of what worship may have been like, but we are invited into the worship of God's people for thousands of years within them. The Psalms for the people of God are a ministry from the cradle to the grave. They tell us constantly again and again in the lisping words of Scripture who God is and who we are because of Him. The reason why I said cradle to grave is that they are simple enough for children to perceive the truth of who God is, yet they are wonderful enough to sustain the Christian all the way to their deathbed. And so friends, as we study this this morning, we are being called and invited by David, the psalmist, 
the great king, the giant slayer, the man after God's own heart to savor God with him, to think about who he is in his person. And David is saying to us, you see, the Lord, he's our shepherd. He's near to us as his sheep. He goes before us. He provides. He cares. And he is constant with us. And so as we study this this morning, David is helping us rejoice in the gifts of God, the good shepherd of us, his sheep. The three points I want us to see in the text is firstly in verse 2 and 3, he leads us. Then in verse 4, he comforts us. And then in verses 5 and 6, he cares for us. He leads us, he comforts us, he cares for us. If you were listening closely, you may recall that I just said we were going to start with the first point in verse 2. And you're thinking, but pastor, don't we have a commitment to all the scriptures? And we do. And in verse 1, David is introducing his psalm. And he has a beautiful statement that you are probably so familiar with that you hear it and you go right on by it. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And this is so unique. This is unique in the ancient world. This is unique also amongst the Israelites. Because in the ancient world, a deity is someone or something or some uh, depiction that's contained in a building or on a rock. And they have a locality. And they don't move. And they don't do things. But they are frightening. They are terrible. And if you cross them, you pay the punishment. There's something like an ancient mob boss who's stuck in a room. And for the Israelites, there is also this idea and the truth of who God is, that he is mighty, that he is a God. He's dangerous in his power. He's frightening. Just think of it. Even the box over which his glory hovers, if you touch it, you die. And the Israelites know this. This is a God that whenever he dwells in the midst of his people, he's in a place behind curtains in an enclosed tent called the Holy of Holies where only one time a year would the high priest alone dare to go in wearing a rope so that if he dies, his body can be pulled to safety. And David says, this Lord, that God, that covenant, wonderful creator, that powerful, just, almighty, holy God. He's my shepherd. He's my shepherd, David says. He's not just a shepherd in general. He's not just the one that leads the flock of Israel, but he's personally David's own shepherd. And if anybody knows anything about shepherds, it's David. He's the shepherd boy raised up by God to take a stone and a sling and to slay the terrible enemy of the people of Israel. And you may come to this and after all, David has invoked the shepherd and you're thinking and maybe some of you have been to places where shepherds are still at work and they're common. Maybe you think about Wales or you think about Scotland or Ireland. 
And you've got this beautiful picture, the rolling hills, they're green, they're gorgeous. And you've got a shepherd and he's got a dog and he's got a staff and he's behind the sheep and he's driving them, maybe by whistles, by calls, or by running the dog or even going himself. And he's directing the sheep and you've got this picture, maybe from movies or personal experience. But that's not the shepherd of the Bible. Do you know that? The ancient Near Eastern shepherd, the Israelite shepherd... Oh, he's not like that at all. He walks in front of the flock. And he's one that knows every single one of his sheep. He's given them names. Hey, big nose. Hey, floppy ears. Hey, brown spot. This way. And he walks in front of the sheep and he has a cadence and a call, a psalm on his tongue. And he's saying, here we go. Let's go this way. A little faster. Turn quickly. Don't fall off the cliff. Come with me. Stay out of the briar. Stay out of the thorns. He's constant in his leadership. He leads the flock out and back into the sheepfold. He's like a general leading an army. And the sheep hear his voice and they know him and so they follow him. And that's who David is framing God as being not just for the Israelites, but for him as a child of God. That's his shepherd. His God, his Lord, knows him by name. Knows the weirdness of where he likes to go. Knows the places where he falls over. Knows the distance that he can go before he's exhausted. Knows the things that he enjoys to eat and the things he absolutely hates. He's a good shepherd. Likewise also, the ancient shepherd didn't only lead them out and lead them back in, but he was their constant companion. He would sleep in the fields in the midst of the flock, their defender, their protector, their keeper, their friend. Always there with them. And you may hear that and think, wow, you've got to be kind of tough to be a shepherd. Oh, yes, you do. You have to be tough according to the elements. You have to be tough according to the disobedience of sheep. You have to be tough according to the wolves that you're defending them from. And David is saying to all of us, he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, the all-powerful God who strikes down those who touch his ark, that God is my shepherd and he's that near to me. And there's intimacy there and care and compassion and goodness. And it's out of all of that that David can proclaim the assurance of his faith about God. If the Lord is his shepherd, he can say with absolute certainty, I shall not want. It's the character of the shepherd. He's not going to leave me without. He's not going to lead me down bad paths. He's not going to do anything to my harm. He's not going to leave me hungry or leave me thirsty. I'll never want because of who this shepherd is. That's your introduction. That's where you begin the psalm. And then you dive off into the gifts of the shepherd. You get to perceive him in the context of who he is as a person to his people. And so let us consider the first. He leads us. Verses 2 and 3. We have these four different descriptions of the leading of God. The first of them is that he makes me lie down in green pastures. The second, he leads me beside still waters. The third, he restores my soul. The fourth, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
And so I want to divide these into two sections. The physical leading and the spiritual leading of God. He cares for body and he cares for soul and he's leading you in both capacities. And of course, you're familiar with this. You may have sung this. I hope you have. My little boys, you've sung this. So listen up. I want to explain to you what it means that he makes you lie down in green pastures and leads you beside still waters. If you've never led sheep, you've never been engaged with animals, you may not understand. And you may read this and you think, well, green pastures, that sounds good. It's a, a verdant meadow. And he, he leads his sheep there, and what are they doing? Well, you might think reflexively and with common sense, they're there to eat. It's a green pasture. What do sheep eat? They eat grass. They're there to eat. But that's not the depiction here. They're lying down. They're not standing up. They're lying down. Not only that, but their lying down is being made to happen by the hand of their shepherd. There's a different picture. This is not grazing land. No, this is refuge. One of the things that any hunter in the room will know is that whenever animals lay down and find a place where they can actually relax and rest, they do it in concealment. They're hiding. As I spoke to Julius earlier, he made mention to me about some of the history he has with with sheep, that you have to make these things lie down. They don't like to do it. And so what's the depiction? It's the shepherd bringing his sheep into the place where they're safe, taking them up in his arms and folding their legs one by one and placing them in the cradle of safety. Where wolves can't see them in the grass, where predators can't know that they're there, they're hiding, they're they're down in their bed and they're safe and secure and that's what's being said. And it's not as if the sheep knows that it's good for them, but rather the shepherd does and he's placed them right there where they're safe and sound. That's what he's saying. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And it's even more meaningful than that they get a very full belly. It seems that that's just assumed. He leads them beside still waters. What's going on there? You think, well, of course, they're drinking. There's water. Well, there's even more. He's then taking them in places where they go one to another, and he's bringing them on safe paths. One of the things, if you've ever moved cattle, maybe if you haven't and you've only seen it on television, the most dangerous thing you could possibly do is to lead them across a river or a stream. Believe it or not, animals don't swim that well, especially herd animals. I mean, fish do, but you understand what I'm getting at. We're talking about sheep. It's safety and it's his directing. He's leading them there. It's a chosen path. It's a place that he's taking them from one position to the next. And it's a calm, safe, wonderful, caring leadership that the Lord is extending to his sheep, his people. It's a wonderful depiction. It's more than eating and drinking. He's caring all the way for who they are. Then the third place where we transition from the physical leadership to the spiritual leadership of the the Lord, he says, he restores my soul. Your translation may say, he renews my soul. And whenever you look at it in the original Hebrew, it could be well translated, he repents my soul. He turns my soul back is literally the phrase 
that would be translated from the word. He takes you and puts you back in the place where you're supposed to be. It's wonderful. And it's the work of the Lord. He's concerned with the souls of his people. It's not just the refreshment or the restoration of how you feel, but his hand setting you back in a right position with himself. Isn't that wonderful? And it's his work and his leading and his dealing with you. You go on and there's a second portion where we're told he leads. He leads in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse 3. Again, the Lord is concerned with your spiritual well-being. He's concerned with you. He wants you to live and to walk according to his ways into a place of righteousness. Where you behold him in his holiness and you behave according to the way he delights. And I just want to back away from this and ask you simply this question. Do you know this of God? Do you know a God that has gone everywhere ahead of you? A God who is orchestrating and ordaining and putting in place your path and your care. Do you know this kind of God? Do you know a God that's gone and laid the bed for you to protect you? Do you know a God who is concerned that you would walk in righteousness and be like him? Do you know him, Christian? Because this is who David is describing to you our God to be. A God who leads us out front. A God who has gone before and who is in every time and every place always caring for you. Something I want to say to you is that the sheep don't perceive the safety of the place where they've gone. They likewise don't perceive the safety of the path. But they are being led. Do you know that this is who your God is? A God who leads. You need to hear this. In every season as a child of God, he has already been there before you. He has. And the places where you currently are, whether you know it or not, he is there with you and he has ordained them to be safe and good for you and for your godliness. I want to encourage you with that, Christian. That's why David sings about it. Because his soul is so strengthened by it. But every step he takes, every inch he moves forward, every hour Every day, every week, he can simply know he's a man led by God and his God is good and his God is a shepherd. In verse 4, we go on and we read that he comforts us. We encounter one of the famous verses of Scripture. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you know much about David or if you've been with us in the evening services, you know that David is a man that has experienced the terrors of life. He's had enemies in the Philistines. He's had an enemy in King Saul. He's had enemies amongst his own family members who give him over to an enraged king and place him in a real hard position between the enemies of Israel and the king of Israel, you know that David has hidden in wilderness and he's hidden in caves 
And he's even hidden in a place generally understood by the Israelites of that time to be the Valley of Spirits. The Valley of Elah where he's backed into the cave. He's there alone and he's, he's taking this solace and this comfort and security from a place that your average person just wouldn't want to go. He's been in a valley of the shadow of death. Could otherwise be translated as the valley of deep darkness. David knows what this is about. And in verse 4, whenever he says this, even though I walk through the valley of of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. David's speaking from profound experience. And the first thing I want to tell you is that David does not dismiss the reality of the dark valley. He assumes it. His experience compels him to simply know that if he's a child of God and he believes he is, that he's not going to avoid those valleys. We don't know the context. David doesn't tell us where he is. He could be in the cave. He could be in the valley at this very moment. He knows what it is. And he's just saying to you and to me, not if, but rather when you're in the valley of death. The place of deep darkness. With your God, there's no reason to fear. That's a wonderful thing to rejoice in. It's David's testimony to the state of his soul that even when all of the hardships of life are pressing down on him, whether it's his enemies, whether it's the political hardship, whether it's his being a king without a crown, without a throne, without a palace, being in a destitute place with no food. He's not afraid. He has a God who is with him and who is caring for him and comforting him. As David says, I will not fear, he gives us two different reasons for his courage in the midst of hardship. The first of them, he says, you are with me. What's he saying? He's saying the presence of God. I will not fear, for you are with me, he says. And then the second is, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's the power of God. The presence and the power of God being these two wonderful truths of the comfort of God for David in the hard season. We'll dig into that in just a moment, but I want to look something straight in the face, and it's this. You may be sitting there with us this morning, and you think, I'm not really afraid of very much. You pound your chest. I'm tough. I'm self-sufficient. I've got things under control. I've got a good job. I've got a good house. I've got things in line. I'm, I'm good. I mean, I don't think I've ever asked anyone in the church, how are you, and had the response, I'm afraid. I'm terrified. But I would wager that you're not all that different than David and you're not that different from me. That you have a heart that is prone to fear. You may not recognize it as that. Maybe you look at it and you say, well, that's not fear. That's anxiety. That's stress. That's any of the uh, 800 different words that you want to psychologize the fear that grips your heart and dismiss it as. All these other things. But at the very heart of it, it's fear. And fear is easy for us to feel. It's not a difficult thing and it's not uncommon to people. I would say for adults, as for children, we usually feel fear, not over the thing directly in front of us, but rather fear of the unknown. 
Because when we don't know what will come, which we never know what will come, you and I don't have foresight of any sort, no matter how you think about yourself, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, you may feel fear. Whenever you're in darkness and you can't see the other side of something, you may feel fear because you don't know what's there, what's not there. And it makes you feel powerless and vulnerable and exposed. And fear can absolutely torment the soul of any person as well as a Christian and haunt you and follow you and bother you, keep you from sleep, keep you from rest, keep you from eating, keep you from everything that is joyful because your mind is so divided and you're so overwhelmed. And David is saying to you and to me, we don't have to feel that way. As children of God, we don't have to feel that way. Years ago, uh, my family and I lived in Yazoo City, where I took the first call as a pastor in my ministry. We had two boys. They're right there, Haddon and Benjamin. And one of the things we used to love to do is we would take evening walks. And usually it was after dark. We'd already fed everybody. We'd had dinner and and we're getting everybody ready for bed. And and I recall we'd walk and in the neighborhood we had this loop. And it was a very well-lit neighborhood. Street lights throughout the neighborhood. Very safe. And... uh, there was little Benjamin in, in the cart, and there was Haddon, a toddler. And if you've ever walked anywhere with a toddler, you know one thing. It's a wandering journey. They go everywhere, and they pick up this little rock. Daddy, look at the rock. They pick up the pine cone. Look at the pine cone, Daddy. They pick up sticks. Look at the sticks. And he's walking, and he's got ten sticks. And there's Benjamin being pushed and Haddon wandering around. And I recall there was one place, this curve in the road around our neighborhood, where there was no streetlight, and it was really dark. And we used to walk, and I always wondered, what's he going to do? What's Haddon going to do in this moment? How's he going to respond? Because after all, he's not holding our hand. He's just, he's just wandering around like a feral little Presbyterian. And every time, again and again, we get to the dark place, he didn't shout, he didn't protest, He simply would walk up and grab my hand. I was with him. I was with him. I was bigger than him. Strong. I could lift him up into my arms. And I could whisk him away to safety if I needed to. And there was nothing to be afraid of. He was safe. Because of the presence and the power of his father. And that's the same thing with our God. When you can't see and you're not given awareness of what's coming next, the reality is that God is with you, his child. And he's protecting you. He's got a rod of iron to smash the head of wolves. And he's got a crooked staff that's longer than his arm to pull you back from danger. You have no reason to fear because of who God is, not because of who you are. I think on the Lord Jesus Christ and the dark valley that he experienced in the dark garden of Gethsemane. The Lord anticipating the coming cross, not like you in that he had absolute and full knowledge of what was coming. Seeing the cross and knowing the wrath of God, the Lord went there. Why? He went to pray desperately longing for the comfort of the presence of God in prayer, he sweated blood 
And he sought the comfort of the Lord, knowing that the power of the Lord would descend upon him, the bearer of the guilt of the sin of humanity. And it was the presence and the power of God that still comforted him and gave him feet to walk through that valley and up that mountain and take his throne on a cross and be adorned with nails and hands and feet and a crown of thorns. Your God is near you, Christian. Do you know this? Is this the thing that comforts your heart? The knowledge of the power and the presence of God for you? It's my prayer that you would know the wonderful comfort of God that comes from only those two wonderful truths. Verses 5 and 6, we see that the Lord cares for us. And you come to verse 5 and you likewise, or you likely can tell a transition in the text. So we've gone from the green pastures to the valley of the shadow of death. And now in verse 5, we're, we're somewhere where a table is. It's this depiction of David being surrounded. We read, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What is this? We're no longer in the wilds. We're no longer in the wildernesses. We're not in the paths. Where, where are we? That makes me wonder, you know, is this a time in David's life where he is surrounded? And it probably is. Where he's besieged and surrounded on every side. And one of the things that you may not be all that aware of is this. Is that whenever an enemy encircles you to defeat you, it's always wise to cut off water source and food sources. Not uncommon for invading armies to go and to take everything from the field, like locusts for their own armies and then to burn the field extremely common not uncommon for them to poison water sources or cut them off entirely by various means and this is something of the picture david surrounded by enemies and he says of the lord and his provision that he prepares a table for him he feeds him and he cares for him he knows his needs why is this important? Where does this meet you? Because you may say, Pastor, I don't think I'm ever going to be surrounded by enemies. Lord willing. Maybe you will. I don't know. Maybe you think you're not going to ever be in a circumstance where the scorched earth policy is at hand and they're burning uh, your, uh, your needed resources. But friend, if you think for one moment you'll never experience a time of sincere and real crisis where you wonder and you worry, and you're gripped even by fear. Can I buy uh, food for my family, a meal for myself? You will. It either has happened to you or it is coming. It's so likely in this life that it's almost inexpressible. Hardships come and there are circumstances. Will I be able to pay the bills? Will I be able to do this? Will I be able to do that? Or will I be able to be provided for in general? Am I going to have any way to care for myself? And what David is saying to you and to me is that the Lord knows what you need. And even in the hard and the dark situation and the time where you're boxed in, you're surrounded, you're backed into a corner, the Lord will provide. He cares about you and he will care for you. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on and he says that the Lord has anointed his head with oil. 
You read commentators on this, and there's a number of different ways to look at this. Some will say that he's being confirmed in his anointing as king. As if he's saying, the Lord is saying once more to me, yes, David, you are going to be the king of Israel. Yes, David, you are the anointed one. Yes, David, you're the one I've chosen. But in the ancient world, anointing is, well, it's even more than that. It's not just a symbol of the Lord's choice, but it's a symbol of what chosen people need. Cleansing. Why is a king anointed? Because it's hard to be a king. He's going to be overwhelmed. His brow's going to get dirty. It's not simple. It's not just palaces and thrones. Not a good king anyway. It's hard work. It's where you get dirty by the people and they need cleansing. What's going on in the anointing in the New Testament? It is the cleansing of the soil of our hardships and sins. It's the refreshing of a person. You've been traveling as a pilgrim and you've gotten covered with dust and filth and all these other things. And what do you do before you enter into the house, before you have a meal or before you go to worship? You're anointed and cleansed and set in a right fashion. The soil is removed from you. The Lord provides cleansing and refreshment for his people. For those that are hard-pressed, for those who experience either the the weight of guilt or the grief of hardship or the weight of sin. That's what's being said here. Do you know that of your God? You know, you heard me maybe earlier, if you were paying attention and awake with me when I prayed about baptism, O Lord. Lord, you have baptized us and continue to pour out the cleansing of the blood of Christ upon us. That's the regular depiction of the Christian. Yes, baptism is a thing once applied, but the spirituality of it is the constant cleansing of the souls of God's people. The regular removal of filth of our souls. Why? Because we are a failing and a sinful people and we desperately need constant refreshment and cleaning. And that's who God is for us and what he does for us. It's a promise of his mercy. Then in verse 6 we transition, I'm sorry, the last portion of verse 5 into 6, we read David give this expression that's unlimited of the blessedness of God and the gifts of the Lord he says my cup overflows there's no limit as if the cup is just flowing as a fountain all the blessings of God they're innumerable they're immeasurable they're regular and they're freely given and they're given to his delight the depiction of the cup is the cup filled with wine to gladden the heart of man The Lord pours out gladness and joy and goodness and blessing and relief and nourishment and care in an overwhelming abundance that David says, I can't even measure it. There's no limit. It's a well that never runs dry. They are gifts that flow forever. And then in verse 6, we're bookended with another statement of assurance. And it is again... A testimony of the care and the keeping of God for his people. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
David is sure that he has the goodness of God and the mercy of God. But here's the thing you may not catch. The word translated shall follow me is like an arrow aimed that is pursuing its target. The Lord is determined. It is his decided intention to bless you. To pour out goodness from his own kind heart upon you and mercy to give you the things that he delights to give and to withhold the wrath that you deserve and he's going to pursue you with it as if he is chasing you down to give you this good gift that's what David says he's sure of I'm sure of it these are the things the Lord is doing and he's not going to stop at any time they will be following and pursuing me all the days of my life from cradle to grave from the first cry to the final breath I'm sure of this my God will not let me go he will help me persevere and he will preserve me and I shall dwell in his house forever I'll always be his child in any season in every tumult and Also triumph, I will be his, I'll be at his table, in his house, his child. It's the the language of family that he's expressing in the close of this verse. And so again, I want to back away from it and look at you, Christian, and say, do you know this God? Friend, do you know this God? You may say, Pastor, you keep saying Christian, but I'm no Christian. Do you know this God? You're hearing about him this morning. Do you know him? He's freely offered to you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the God of the Christian. This is his character and it's unchanging. He was the same before David in David's life and he remains the same today. This is your God if you would have him by faith in his son. And I plead with you, brother and sister in Christ, Don't look away. Don't ignore the familiar 23rd Psalm. Rejoice in the God that it testifies to and in the grace that you receive freely from his hand. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the songs of your people. Lord, help us that we would know them and sing them afresh with hearts of faith. Lord, we love you and we are thankful for all that you give. And we ask, Lord, that as we continue to worship you, as in a few moments we come to this table, Lord, that you administer to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.